0: Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke's Gospel, the eighth chapter. We continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel, and now we come to a series of parables that deal with the Word of God and the importance of how we receive the Word of God. And the first of those parables is found here in verses 4 through 15, the well-known parable of the soils. I'll begin for context's sake, though, back at verse 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. These are the very words of God. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. And when a much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it, and choked it. And other fell on good ground, and sprang up, and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that seeing they might not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root which for a while believe and in time of temptation fall away. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our holy God, how we thank you for the word of God, which in itself is so complete, Father, that we may know how to even receive the word of God that we receive now. Father, as the word is now to be sown by being preached, we pray that you would bless the sower, the preacher, that he would preach up Christ, and he would preach in a manner that is worthy of this text. Give him the spirit to accomplish the spirit's aim. And we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would plow every heart here, that it would be good ground, fertile ground, ready to receive the seeds of the Word, that all the hearts here would bear fruit a hundredfold from what they receive. that this Word would be applicatory to them in every station of life. O Father, you have said, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? We admit it is, Father, for that is truth. So Father, use the word of God as a fire and as a hammer that breaks the fallow ground of our heart. We pray and ask you would do this for the glory of Christ. In his name, amen. Well, One of the great evils in our day in the church is a lack of discriminating preaching. Preaching that confronts every soul in the pew to consider their standing with the Almighty. Preaching that sets heaven And hell, life, and death before every soul that hears the word of God, it confronts them to ask, where am I headed, and how do I know that? The Lord, as you well know, was a very discriminating preacher himself. He was in the habit, when the crowds would grow large, of thinning them. You know this quite well, I am certain. He presses on the people constantly. Why have you come to me? Why do you come to me? Do you come to me for the miracles? Do you come to me for the healings? Do you come to me for the bread and the fish? Or do you come to me for my own sake? Do you come to repent of sin, to submit to my word and to flee to me for salvation? Do you come to turn to me for grace? And to make you consider your standing with Him today, He cries in this text, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. What is the implication? Some of you have no ear to hear. And you must ask yourself, Do I hear the Lord today in the preaching of the Word? Discriminating preaching like that, friends, that the Lord was in the habit of, is despised by the flesh. But it is the very means, friends, that assures us, if we are Christ's, that we are truly His. And it keeps us from presumption. It also has us consider our ways constantly to spur us into a holy walk with the Lord and walk with Him day by day. And here in the parable of the soils, we find a very discriminating parable that searches the heart. It causes us to survey these four kinds of soils that you have heard and ask, which one am I? Which one am I? Because only one of the four is saved and headed to glory. And if you realize that you're one of the other three, today it is your calling to repent and seek the mercies of the Lord that he would give you a new heart that is good in his sight. And if you would repent and turn to the Lord for mercy in that action, you will have found that the Spirit has truly plowed this text into the fallow ground of your heart, and you are bearing fruit to the glory of God. And so with that, our theme is that discriminating question, which soil are you? And we'll consider it under three heads. First is to think on the parable, just sort of generally. Second is to consider the seed and the parable. And the third is where we will spend most of our time, which is to consider the soil that is here in this text. First, the parable. Well, you remember last time, Jesus was relentless in preaching. He went into every city into every town, and he proclaimed the good news, the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. He preached the gospel. And if you see here in verse 4 what the effects of his preaching were, it would be a tremendous encouragement to just about any other preacher. In verse 4, when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable. You see, there's a great crowd here, isn't there? Much people Out of every city that he had preached in, they came to him. But did this satisfy the Lord? It did not. It did not. He was a discriminating preacher. He's not content to have a large crowd in a big stadium to preach your best life now. Instead, he preaches and confronts every soul who hears him to consider why they have come to the Lord to hear him and to consider their standing with him. And he delivers here this parable of the soils, one of the best known parables in the Bible. A parable that at its root is about how the heart of man will receive the word of God. It's a vital parable. It's a foundational parable. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10:17. How you receive the word of God is vital. It is literally a matter of life and death. Before we consider the parable proper, consider why he says he spoke in parables. Verse 9, his disciples asked him, saying, what might this parable be? They would like to understand it. But before Christ launches into its explanation, he explains his method. His method of using parables to teach gospel truth. In verse 10, He said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. That, you might recognize, comes out of Isaiah 6, verse 9. And of course, what's so interesting, right? This is a little side thing, but I I just thought how fascinating and how wonderful for our faith, right? You know, who was it that Isaiah received those words from? It was the Son of God pre-incarnate, wasn't it? In John 12... Right, John explains that Isaiah saw his glory, the glory of Jesus Christ. And so this is really Jesus' own words pre-incarnate that he is taking up from the book of Isaiah that he himself once gave to the prophet. Wonderful if you just meditated on that. But that aside, what is the point Jesus was making about the parables in that teaching? They have a duality. They have a dual purpose. They either open your ear and illuminate your mind, or they stop up your ear and they darken your mind. To the disciples, he says, the parables are given to reveal in a profound way the mysteries of the kingdom of God. In a tangible way, you know, you think about this. Our Lord is the greatest preacher of all. And he doesn't explain truth the way maybe our systematic theology books do, but in a way that every single person who is truly born again can grasp. In a way that the youngest child who knows the Lord, can understand as well as the most seasoned saints in a memorable way that you will never forget, that the word of God must be planted in the good soil of a heart. They illuminate to the believer. But for the unbeliever, these parables are dark sayings, incomprehensible. What are you talking about? Seed and soil and birds. What is the truth here? And so to the unbeliever, it further darkens their understanding. And the impious mind will not even really wonder what Jesus is about. just sounds like the riddle of so many, like, you think of Eastern men who love to speak in riddles. The Lord is not like that at all. The Lord means to illuminate. But the impious mind is not interested in asking Him the meaning. But the pious mind, the disciple, the spiritually sensitive soul, they desire to understand every word that proceedeth from the mouth of the Lord. And they want to have the mysteries of the kingdom revealed. That is what a disciple is. Deeply concerned and interested in the things of God. That's why the disciples here, they ask him. I love this. They go to the Lord. I wish that so many of us would just go to the Lord and ask, teach us the meaning. That should be your desire as disciples. Teach me, Lord. If you don't have that heart, it is unlikely you are a disciple and he patiently and kindly explains the parable. This is for you. Every honest inquirer is invited by the Lord to take up and learn from him, to come to him humbly. And so he teaches the parable's meaning through verses 11 through 15. He does it clearly and succinctly. Again, parables are not riddles. They're not riddles you never have to come up with your own explanation, child of God. You don't have to sit around the table like the postmodern and ask, well, what are the birds to you? What do you think they are? What are these soils? Let's come up with all kinds of interesting ideas. He does not He does not expect you to do that. Jesus will give you the explanation to his parables. And if he does not explain an element of the parable, it is best you don't allegorize it. He brings out Those elements of his parables that he expects you to understand and all the other parts, you know, what what does this particularly mean? Or what is this setting here? Those are probably just there to make the story work. But the teaching is explained always. And we'll do well to understand parables with that simple guideline. So, having heard Christ's method, let's consider his explanation. Let me reread the parable again, the illustrative part, to bring it back to remembrance. Verses 5 through 8. A sower Jesus is going to teach the primary elements of this parable are these, the sower, his seed, and the four kinds of soil. Those are the aspects that have importance to us. And its primary point, and this is where we have to just uh, zero in on it, is that uh, interaction of the seed with the four soils. If you get that right, then you will understand the meaning of the parable. And so keeping with that, Let's consider the seed as our second heading. In verse 11, the Lord Jesus explains. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. You see how he explains so clearly his parables? right? We're not left wondering, well, what is the seed? Is it this? Is it that? What is it? He explains. It is the word of God. And what you find in this text then is that the primary work of the ministry is to implant the word of God into souls. That's the primary work of the ministry is to take this word and to drive it deep into the souls of God's people. The sower in the parable is the man who preaches the good word. In the parable of the tares, Matthew 13, 37, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. Today, Jesus still sows his seed, even though he's not there bodily on the earth. He's at the right hand of God, the father, but he sows his word through preachers. Who are sowers of the word. 1 Corinthians 9.11, Paul reminds us, we have sown unto you spiritual things. So the word is still sown today, and it is sown through the preaching ministry. What the Lord teaches through this parable is the prim- primacy of the word of God for our faith and our life. Boys and girls, let me just remind you, especially at such a tender age now, never forget, boys and girls, that this word from God is the main thing. It's the main thing. It is this word that regenerates and also rejuvenates the soul. You need to keep it primary in your life, even at your youngest days. You know, Peter was there when Jesus preached this parable. And What did he write in 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25? How are you born again? Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. And what does he say it is? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, for all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. You know, hundreds of years, thousands of years have come and gone. Regimes have come, regimes have fallen, but the word of our God has endured forever. And it will always endure, friends. And you are born again, and you yourself will endure forever out of the word of God implanted in your heart. Children, this is why your parents desire you to be under the preached word, that you would have life and life everlasting, that you might be born again by the word of God. It is incorruptible seed. And for us who are already born again, we see that the fruitfulness of the Christian life comes out of the word of God being planted in the soul. And for all of us then, we must understand that the faith once delivered is a word-centered faith. It is the word of God that is at the center of it all. And your primary spiritual diet must be of the word of God. Personal, and this is where even we can go so wrong in the Reformed Church, personal and family worship must not be found in the catechism and in the commentary. But it must be rooted in the word of God. Save commentaries after you have soaked up the word into your soul. Your soul, I will say, will profit more by considering your Bible's cross-references in every verse than from the eloquent words of ecclesiastical writers. I'm not discounting them. You will be blessed to study the word with their help, but foremost must be your time in the word. Apollos was called what? Mighty in the scriptures. Mighty in the Scriptures. That is what we all must be. Never desire, sometimes we can be, the devil perverts good things so subtly, right? Never desire to be mighty in Calvin and Rutherford, but be mighty in the Scripture. What made Rutherford and Calvin great? They were mighty in the Scripture foremost. And the men whose preaching you will sit under, they must be men who take to heart what the Bible says, which is what? Preach the Word. Preach the word, Second Timothy 4.2. Their sermons must be filled with the scripture, the life-giving word, not their own musings, not their own anecdotes, not stuffed with the quotations of men and creeds either, because your soul is born again and made fruitful by the word, and nothing else has that promise. With that then, to consider the word of God, which we magnify God for, Jesus shows us four different responses to every word that is sown by the sower. There are four different responses, but this is the important thing to take note. There's only one variable that changes. There's only one variable that changes. There is one sower. There is one kind of seed. The only variable are the four kinds of soil. If there were four different kinds of seed, you would have no idea, would you, if it was the different kind of seed that caused the effect of fruitfulness. If there were four different kinds of sowers, you would wonder the same. But there are not four different kinds of sowers. It is the same sower, same seed, different responses. What makes the difference? What's the one variable? The heart that receives the word. That's the key for the parable. That is the key for the parable. Take note of it in your own mind and heart. That it is on us, friends. It is on us. Never the faith, the the fault of a faithful sower or his seed, the word of God, but on us who are the soils. And I'm going to speak to the sower for a bit. Preachers of the gospel must then understand that they preach the same word to all of these different kinds of soil. You know, that the parable, right, preaches in one way that the preaching of the word is discriminatory and searching. In another sense, it is indiscriminate. It is preached to all kinds of people, all kinds of people, all kinds of men. The sower went out to scatter the seed of the word on all kinds of ground. He did not just hunt out. I will put the seed particularly in what I know is good ground, which bears fruit to perfection. He scatters his seed on every kind of ground, and he then teaches us, Jesus does, the free offer of the gospel. A gospel to be scattered everywhere, that it may convert souls with power. That's why there was preaching outside of this building yesterday in McKinney Square. But also as I preach to you, you might notice this, right? You might say, Pastor, you've known me for years now, but you still preach. You still preach as though I might be one of the unconverted. That's necessary. That's necessary because you're going to see here, there are some soils that show what appear to be life, but it's not life at all. Many appear outwardly as believers but are not converted, so every kind of soil must be convicted under the preaching of the Word, to convict sinners to break up the fallow ground of their heart, to take up the Lord and His Word. And so, let us then consider, as our third heading, what kind of soil we might be in the soils. And the other heads were really an extended introduction to this one, and it is the meat of the parable. As you hear of these four kinds of soil... Constantly ask yourself, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Am I this kind of soil? Even if born again, you have to understand this, even if the heart has been renewed, your flesh often causes you to interact with the Word of God as these three kinds of unfruitful soil at times. So you are to learn the lessons from each soil and plow your heart constantly to receive the words of life to be fruitful. And so in verse 12, Jesus explains the first soil which is found on the wayside. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. Now the wayside, you might understand this, maybe boys and girls you've studied this as you've studied this parable. The wayside is, is like a pathway, right? Or a narrow pathway that the sower will walk on so that he may uh, sow his seed in his field. But because it is constantly being walked upon, it is hard ground, and seed cannot penetrate it. What is this but the natural hardness of the human heart? Romans 2.5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up thysel, unto thyself wrath. You have to consider this, as you consider the words of life. How hard natural man's heart is, beloved. How often the mercy and grace of God is preached to man. How often the cross of Christ is preached. Salvation through the travail of the God-man who bled for sinners. To give everlasting life to all who would believe on him and receive him. To all who would take his free gift of salvation freely. He says, come without price, look unto Jesus and live forever. How hard are hearts to reject that message? Seed on the wayside. Do you find disdain for the gospel message, friend? Is yours an impenitent and hard heart like this ground? What a dreadful condition that is to be in, to have such hardness of heart, to hear Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners, even the chief, that all you must do is repent of your sin and turn to him, By faith, receive him by faith and live forever. And to reject that, that word, that's a hard heart indeed. Hard to understand if I myself didn't have a heart like that once. The question the Bible asks is, why die? Why reject this free mercy from God when you can receive the good word of the Lord and be saved, born again? You know, As you consider the agent here who works, you're called to fight the devil who is here now to murder you. The devil and his demons are here in the preaching of the word. He's present when the word of God is preached, this text says. In verse 5, Christ said that the birds of the air, the fowls of the air, come to snatch the seed away. And here he explained, didn't he, in verse 12, that the birds represent the devil who snatches the word of God from the heart. Why? Lest they should believe and be saved. Unbeliever, you need to consider the devil's motives in snatching the seed out of your heart. Your father, the devil, desires to murder you. He desires to murder you. Jesus said that he was a murderer from the beginning. He murdered our first parents and he is a murderer today. He does not change in that way and he never will. And when you resist the word that is being sown, you give in to his murderous design. Will you be wise and allow the word to penetrate your soul and flee the wrath to come? The devil knows his time is about up. The clock is ticking. He knows the lake of fire looms large before him. And he would love nothing more than to drag each and every one of you there with him. Understand his motives. The Lord is very clear as he assists you in the hardening of your heart. And we thank the Lord, though, that the devil might be here. But when the word of God is sown, so is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God almighty. And in the spirit is freedom. So take the word of God by faith and believe it. And the spirit of the Lord will smash aside your stony heart and take away the devil from your heart. Thwart the devil, friends. You know, the parallel text in Matthew thirteen nineteen is actually very helpful. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, speaking of the devil, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. When he says that the, the word is unintelligible, he's not saying that the word on the face of it is unintelligible. And is too hard to understand. The word of God is plain. You can all understand this word, I trust, here. Even some of our youngest children, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting or eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6.23. That is easy to understand, and I trust none of you have a comprehension problem right now. But, he says, you might understand it not. Meaning, That if you did understand it, you would flee to Jesus Christ. You would flee to Christ. It is the hardness of your heart and the blindness of your mind that causes you not to believe it. And the devil loves that and he snatches the word away from you so that you would not believe. But believer, even for you believers, you need to then be mindful that the devil is active. The forces of hell are active when the word is preached. He is an active force. This is the Lord's own teaching. Seeking to snatch it away from your heart to keep you unfruitful. He will not take the word. Listen, he's not going to take the word out of your printed Bible. He's not going to take the word out of your written down notes. But he's going to take it where it belongs, which is your heart. And he will snatch it from your heart where it must truly be. He loves it. Oh, how he loves this. When your mind wanders about from the word of God as it is preached, or it is heard and read. And I thought on this, and I thought what the saddest thing about this parable to me, in this soil rather, is that the devil can actually be a very lazy devil in most churches. Really can. He can twiddle his thumbs in most churches. He has very little to do. He is probably bored out of his mind. He does not have much of the word coming from the pulpit to intercept from sowers. They hardly preach the word. But also he does not have to do much work in intercepting the seed that is cast because the people of God are typically half listening or not listening at all. So let us resolve that both from pulpit and pew, the devil must work overtime. Make him a busy devil and not an idle devil. Each of you. How else can we handle this warning from this first soil? Well, I would say this. As the word is sown... When you hear the word of God and it comes into your heart, resolve to do your business with the Lord straight away. Don't delay. Hasten to it. If the word, right, this is, uh, and I have experienced this, so I understand this quite well, friends. I understand this. I have done this myself. It, it, I have delayed in responding to the Word of God, and it has been unfruitful in my life. If the Word comes, right, and it demands your repentance and reformation, do it straight away. If the Word demands you to lay hold of the promises of God in Christ, do it now. Our growth in grace is very much stunted by our delay in responding to the Word. You know, the, the refrain of the young child, right, I'll do it tomorrow. That ought never be us. It gives opportunity for the devil to take away what was sown. That's one of the reasons in the announcements you heard, we're changing our post-service routine to keep this meeting hall a place where you might do business with the Lord after service. To implant that word, to water that word with prayer and fervent meditation that it would drive into your soul. To glorify God whenever you have heard a praiseworthy word or you've heard the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As they say, strike while the iron is hot, you will be richly blessed. So that's the first soil, the wayside. The second is stony ground, stony soil. And in this soil and the third, this is where Christ is going to be very searching for those who profess the faith. And you are to search your heart. Verse 6, we find the illustration. And some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. The seed falls on stony ground and the ground is so stony it cannot take root. It cannot draw moisture from the ground and it dries out. Matthew's parallel text records it more illustratively. Stony places where they had not much earth, these shallow earth, and forthwith they sprang up because they had no deepness of earth, right? It hits the rock, can't go any further. And when the sun was up, what happens? They were scorched, And because they had no root, they withered away. The shallow roots, right, causes uh, these, these plants to wither away in the heat of the sun. Christ explains the parable in our text in verse 13. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. This is where we start to tremble. Receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. What kind of hearers hear for a while with joy? For a while, believe with joy. Well, you have to understand, friends, that there is a natural aspect to the gospel that even cheers the the natural man, right? There's a natural effect often that the gospel has that is not spiritual. Sometimes man will hear of hellfire and they will say, I don't want to go to hell. They hear of the Lord Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. And it sorrows them, right, to think of this innocent man coming under the penalty of death. It does. Maybe Jesus captivates them for a little while. But I'll tell you, friends, I know people who are captivated by George Washington and are affected by what he did for the country and his heroics. So there is a natural effect that the gospel might produce. And Jesus Christ, as just a historical figure, is the most captivating man of all. Even men like Gandhi have been captivated by him. But there has been no saving interest in the Redeemer. Some will find a certain benefit to professing faith. You know, Simon the magician is a great example of this kind of temporary faith. He saw the power and the miracles of the Holy Ghost and he wanted it. That's the lure often in charismatic churches, isn't it? Some might find a great trial of health or difficulties at home, and somebody shares Jesus Christ with them, and they say, I will believe because I think this Jesus might be the solution to my problems. And they receive the word with joy for a little while. All that to say, and you must search your own heart as to why you have come to Christ. There is a fleshly kind of belief in Jesus, which is no belief at all. It often comes with enthusiasm. It often comes with joy of a kind. And I'll just say, sad to say, in my time in the church, I have run into many who are enthusiasts for a time, and then you look around, and they are nowhere to be found. They turn away and apostatize, and it's no longer, Jesus is no longer interesting to them. What happened? The parable says they were never rooted in Christ never rooted in Christ. Their roots were surface level. Their roots were in their flesh, their intellect, or their emotions. But they that are true branches in Jesus Christ, that last soil, they are connected to the vine as in John 15, right? So they are moved to always remain in Him. And you hear that warning in John 15, 6, of a man abide not in me. He is cast forth as a branch and is withered. See that language? He is withered. There is no life in him. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You need to have roots that are truly, truly in Jesus Christ, the Savior, by faith. One of the ways you can know, I would just refer you to our Hebrews 6 text on apostasy, as we have recently considered it, because this falling away is the same exact language as in Hebrews 6 a few weeks ago. But what you have to do is you have to make sure you are rooted deeply in Christ. Have a constant communion with Him. Constant. Drink deeply of the Savior by faith through His ordinances, right? Word, sacrament, and prayer. Know the Lord. The text says they were not rooted in Him. Apostasy. Those who will walk away from Christ were never truly engrafted in Christ. This is not saying true believers will fall away but it's a warning to consider our ways if we are truly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the parable, the scorching heat that withers the word, our Lord says, are temptations, also trials. It's very easy, friends, to be a fair-weather friend of Jesus Christ. Very easy. Until temptations come and your desire for sin increases over your desire for the Savior, and you hear, whether in the preached word or you just take up the Bible and read, and you know that to be given over to your sin means you must walk away from Christ. If you say, I want to chase this, which is against the word of God, I will have to leave the Savior. And at that crossroads of Savior and sin, you abandon Him for your sin because you were never vitally united to Him with true saving faith, and you walk away. Or in trials, the trials come and you are tempted as Job's wife to curse him and die. When the trial comes, when friends and family rail against you, this is when you know, are my roots truly in the Savior? When you are told, right, by the world, you have to either abandon Christ or lose your standing in the world. And you are tempted to walk away from him as those in John 6 did. That's when you know, are my roots truly in the Savior? No true Christian will abandon Jesus Christ, but they will endure trials and tribulations. Even if they stumble right at points like Peter did and fall for a little bit, they always repent and they return as they are crushed in the heart over denying the Lord. And this I want you to understand because uh, we'll consider this as the theme in the evening sermon, but I'll bring this to you now. Temptations and trials are actually very good for you, believer. When you emerge, even if you emerge shaken, but with your faith intact, how you know that your roots are truly buried deep into Jesus Christ the vine. Pulling vital spiritual moisture for your soul through him by his spirit, how you know that he is not just a passing fancy, or a fad for you, or a phase. In a lot of ways, what a terrible thing it is to never, ever face a trial of faith. Listen again to Peter. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. And this is how you know, really, how deep your roots are in Christ. Listen to what he says next. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now you see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. You see, a trial of your faith, friends, as you come through it, as the Lord brings you through it, really, makes faith more precious, it makes it more substantial, and it makes you adore Jesus more. And you say, yes, I truly do love this Jesus whom I have never seen with my eyes, only with the eyes of my understanding. I truly love him and adore him. But the rocky soil Christian says, enough. I've had enough. Is this what life as a Christian is? And they fall away. Why? Because they were never held by the life-giving Savior, by faith. You need to be confronted, each of you, by the question he asked when others walked away in John 6, 66. Will ye also go away? Will ye also go away, whatever the trial? What did Peter say when Jesus asked the question? Lord, to whom shall we go? Why? Listen to this carefully with the theme. Thou hast the words of eternal life. Thou hast the words of eternal life. There is a man where the word of God had sunk into the soul and taken root. And that is what we all must be. So bless the Lord, if you have emerged from a trial of faith on the Lord's side, having said constantly through it all, Lord, to whom shall I go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Then the third soil has thorns, The illustration is in verse 7. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. So see, whatever is growing is choked out by thorns. The explanation is in verse 14. And that which fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. In this soil, the word is choked out by something. Thorns. And what are the thorns that choke out our life? Again, (laughs) you don't have to guess. The Lord plainly tells you, cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. Not the riches of the life to come. Not the pleasures of the life to come in the beatific vision, but the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And here the Lord speaks of the danger of worldliness in the Christian There is a kind of Christian in this soil with the form of godliness, but who denies the power thereof. The kind of Christian who has a name that is alive, but is in fact dead. They are present in the church everywhere. Maybe even here, this Lord's Day. They are hard to distinguish, really. They do not visibly, you understand here, fall away and wither as the last soil. But neither do they bring fruit to perfection. That means maturity, boys and girls. They don't bring fruit to maturity that fruit of godliness and of holiness, of good works. They talk a good game, and in the Reformed churches we have a lot of talkers. But they are unfruitful men and women who have no true communion with God. Their lives are consumed with cares and anxieties and the things of this world. And what happens? Because their souls are consumed with those things, the Word finds no place to really take root and and, and blossom, so to speak. The word of God is never exercised. How can it? It's not tended to because the word has been choked out by the the thorns that seem to be where the water goes in the soul. You see, what is really the sad and perplexing thing here is that this person is watering their thorns and they're not tending to the word of God in their lives And because they tend to the thorns, worldly cares and pleasures and loves choke out their dealings with the Word and the Word is unfruitful and it doesn't bear fruit because they don't really desire the Word of God. They may say they're a Christian, but their life will testify otherwise. They don't seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew 6.33. And they forget, right, in their cares, as we think of cares, the promise there. And our elder prayed this way, that all that we need will be given to us if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we'll not have to have any anxieties, because God will care for us. That's a promise you can hold God to, and he will hold himself to. And so what happens? Because their anxieties have gripped them, they take no time to mortify sin. There's no time spent in the fruits of holiness and righteousness. And the cares of this world choke out their spiritual life. But the Lord says you have things totally reversed, friends. You are to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and he will care for you, and he will remove anxiety and cause you to be fruitful, and he will tend to your soil so that he will remove the thorns of these cares. And he uses thorns very particularly. The the riches and pleasures of this world as well are as thorns that pierce our souls. We don't perceive them that way. We perceive them the opposite, that we will find pleasure. If I nurture the thorns, then my soul will prosper. But instead, he says, the opposite is happening to you. And your soul is being pierced with many sorrows. Learn contentment, beloved. Learn to not love this world. You know, many of us pursue our estates more wholeheartedly than we pursue Jesus Christ. I often speak with men. I'm not speaking to anybody particularly here, but maybe I am. I don't know. Um, I often speak to men... Who chase, chase really hard after wealth, all that they can have in this world. And you know, if, if you can balance that out with your spiritual life, right? If you can tend to the garden of your heart, then there's nothing wrong with increasing your estate. In fact, there is a certain aspect where it is our God given duty to increase our estate. But the problem comes when, when I often meet men like this, when I ask them, how often and consistent are you in your prayer life? How much of your Bible do you read daily? How often do you meditate on the word? How do you serve the kingdom presently? How are you seeking to mortify your sin? How are you cultivating the fruit of good works? What's the predictable answer? I am too busy. I am too busy with my work, and I am too busy with whatever else I have in this world. Let me remind you of this promise from the Lord when he says, Better is little with the fear of the Lord. Then great treasure and what? Trouble therewith, Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Even the unbeliever, I, you know, before I was a, a believer, sometimes I would listen to songs and I'd often think of, not that listening to songs is for the unbeliever, sorry, that came off wrong. But often even the world's uh, bards, so to speak, will say that when they had nothing, right, their life was more content. Often the troubles begin when they start to pile on their estate, And for the Christian, this is often really, really deadly to the soul. William Greenhill once preached, Men can endure any difficulty or danger to get estates, but will hardly endure anything to get heaven, grace, or an interest in Christ. Terrible. Sometimes men will lie, uh, rather their flesh will lie to them and their soul. They will often say, uh, You know, the reason I'm pursuing a great estate, and I'm so busy... Is for the sake of the kingdom, to better give to the kingdom of God. (sighs) Let me just say this. The church does not want your tithe if you are murdering your soul, and you're murdering your family's soul. The Lord Jesus Christ doesn't want your blood money. He doesn't want money that has been uh, souls sacrificed on the altar, so to speak. He will throw it back as the money was thrown back to Judas, He does not want money that has come with the murder of soul. If the church wanted money like that, it would be no better than Satan. You think Jesus wants money stained with the blood of your soul and your family? I think you misunderstand him. He will provide for his church. He doesn't need you to murder yourself. So sure, pursue your estate and pursue to serve the kingdom with your wealth. But only only if you're not murdering your soul to do it. Only if it does not come at the expense of your communion with Christ. If it is, change your priorities and do it now, for your soul is withering away. Then Christ speaks of worldly pleasure, which chokes out his word. You know, time is short, and this could be an entire sermon in itself, and men have preached just on this part, portion. I was sorely tempted to have four sermons on this, and I just thought better of it. But we are far too prone to pursue entertainment and pleasure today. Far too prone. And we think it's a balm for our soul, but it is a thorn it is a thorn, friends. The average Christian today spends orders of magnitude, and I am, not, I am not overstating the case, orders of magnitude more time in amusements, entertainments, hobbies, and recreations than they do with their Lord. Our smartphones now, right? They have infinite, it seems, entertainments and amusements and games. Again, we are often deceived, right? This is the subtlety and the deception of sin. We often say, right, my Bible... And my Psalter is on the phone, and so I'll often use the phone for spiritual aims. But but you can probably measure this. Most phones you can. Measure how often you open your Bible and spend time in it compared to other apps. I think you might be deceiving yourself. I'm not saying you can't use your smartphone, mind, that well. I'm saying have mastery over yourself. The flesh is always prone to pursue entertainment over religion. You know, I was talking to some ministers about this. That The average Christian, right will find excitement, right? At the end of their day, after work, they will run out, they'll go to the movie or the ball game, right? But what do you say when you say, come to the prayer meeting? Man, I'm tired. Movie theaters and stadiums are full and full of what? Christians. Second services and prayer meetings are virtually empty. I'm not saying because you don't have a good reason, I'm just saying that there are often the case that our flesh is more enticed by things of the world, amusements, than to seek time with the Lord. Recreation is not immoral in itself, but one man put it so helpfully. Recreation should be medicine and not food. But for many of us, we live off our amusements and recreations, and so so we find ourselves in this type of soil. We, because of our cares then, our riches and our pleasures, we find that the word is choked up in our life and we bear no fruit. We're often taken up by this phony worldly trinity that the Lord gives us here and we have no time to pursue Christ, his kingdom, his righteousness and bear the fruit of godliness. Look at where your time goes, beloved. See if you're serving the world or Christ. The Lord takes up the words of Jeremiah 4.3 here, isn't he? Break up your fallow ground and sow not among where? Thorns. What are thorns good for in the Bible? To be burned and eradicated. Burn the thorns in your heart, beloved. Burn the worldly cares and concerns. Burn your love for worldly pleasure and cultivate the seeds of godly pleasure. There truly are pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. We have to cultivate these pleasures and not the pleasures of this world. Lastly, there is good soil, fertile and fruitful. Described verse 8. another fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. Verse 15, the explanation. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bear forth fruit with patience. Now here is the godly heart. This is the heart we are called to have, the regenerate heart. They bear fruit a hundredfold. My understanding is, and I am nothing to do with horticulture, right? That this is impossible naturally. That seed would bear a hundredfold increase. This is the work of the Holy Spirit then that waters the word that causes us to be fruitful. This heart has been born again from above by the Spirit and water. And what it does is when it hears the word, what does he say? It keeps the word. It's a doer of the word and not just a hearer of the word. It keeps the word. To keep the word is to do the word. It's to hide it in the heart and bring forth the fruits of it. And it does so here with patience. Oh, how God's people need patience. This Christian is not an enthusiast who is easily worked up for a time, right? But then is discouraged saying, you know, pastor, I I tried. I prayed. Nothing really happened. I read the Bible. Uh, I give up. This is not a Christian who is easily discouraged by trials and temptations and the affliction of the burning sun. The good ground is long-suffering. It is patient. It works the Word into their life. It prays for the watering of the Spirit. It meditates on the Word both day and night, as in Psalm 1. These roots are deep in Christ. They drink in the means of grace, word, sacrament, and prayer, and they do what the Word says, and they perfect holiness in the fear of God. And they rely on the mercy of Christ to cover their failings, and they will not be discouraged. They know sanctification has its fits and its starts. They ever look for Jesus, for their standing with God, and for grace. This is who you must be, all of you. This is who you must be. How does it begin? With the gospel driving into your hearts receiving Christ, closing with him, Ezekiel 18, cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. And here's the question, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. If that word has penetrated your heart, yours is ground that can receive any word from God, any word, and bear fruit by his spirit. Romans 6.22 But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness. And what's its end? Everlasting life. How the word of God coheres together. Believe that word. Keep that word. Nurture that word in your soul and bear the fruit of the word holiness in your lives. And so the Lord cries out to you all from verse 8. He that hath ears to hear Let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? Or has this word fallen by the wayside of your heart? Has this word been cast upon stony ground? Has this word been choked out by the cares of this life? Are you even now thinking about Monday? Thinking about the cares that you have? Are you even now thinking about what will be on the television? If so, this word is already being choked out, friends. So let me ask, which of these soils are you? Which of these soils are you? If you are not the good soil, at least not yet, just pray for a new heart earnestly, and God will give it to you. For him that cometh to me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. And believer, if you sense a deficiency in the soil of your soul, do not grow discouraged. Spend time with the Lord after service. Confess your faults and ask for his help. Our Lord is very gracious and very kind to those who come to him humbly as these disciples did. Praise the Lord. We'll leave Luke here. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord, our God, the word of God has been sown, but only you can bring in the increase. Father, would you cause the word to be planted in every heart here in good soil? If there are those who have had a hard and hard and impenitent heart, Father, would you plow that hard ground as only you can? We cannot do it, Father. Only you can. The minister cannot do it. The individual cannot do it. Only you can, Father. Plow the heart. We pray that if any here, any here, Father, have had uh, the Word of God not take root deep into their soul, that you would, Father, cause the Word to implant deep into Christ, uh, in their hearts that would lead them to Christ, and it, they would find themselves rooted in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And for those of us who do believe, Father, we confess to you that we believe, help thou our unbelief. Give us hearts that are better, uh, better in being receptive to the Word, Help us keep the word. Help us bear fruit with patience, Father. Oh, we are in need of patience. Give us patience, Lord, that you would have a great fruitful crop out of each of us. And when that crop comes in, Father, the fruits of holiness and righteousness, we would bless you, Father, for you have tended our hearts. And we know that you would receive the glory. We thank you for the work that you do in us. Bless this preaching of the word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.